welcome to the Alpha Architect Christmas Spectacular. Uh, I asked Wes and Jack here to each pick their favorite proprietary research paper from this year, as well as the one paper um, that was their favorite research summary from this year, where they summarized someone else's research. So we'll kick it right off with uh, Wes's selection for his favorite paper from the year, which was titled, Trend Following the Epitome of No Pain, No Gain. Uh, remind us, Wes, what spurred you to do this research on trend following? Sure, well, there's really two reasons. One, we had access to GFD, global financial data, so I had additional data to play with. And then second reason is we just lived through a rough time in trend following, so I was like, you know what, I'd like to get a better understanding of is this normal, is this abnormal, or is this to be expected? Uh, it turns out that it's to be expected, unfortunately. Unfortunately. Um, so, so before we dive into the more specific results you found in the paper, explain to us how you set up the study. Sure. So the, the basic experiment was let's get long-term data on every country that we can. Mm -hmm. And I, I started this uh, particular research paper from 1927 all the way up to May 2019. Uh, but the basic idea was let's just look how basic long flat trend falling where you're long the asset if it's above a 12-month moving average or if it's above the 12-month uh, return is above the 12-month T-bill and if if you're trending good you own it if not you are just in cash and just looking at the performance of uh, that versus buy and hold versions right um, and then what, what were the high-level results you found the high-level results is Luckily, and I guess to be expected, is that trend falling works in the sense that you capture most of the upside, but it avoids a lot of the uh, you know extreme left tails. Uh, one interesting thing that we found in the data that also makes sense is somewhere like uh, Germany and Japan, where you have a 95% drawdown yeah. during World War II, your trend falling is not going to save uh, those sort of drawdowns if you just wake up and the market's been eradicated. Right. Um, but that's also to be expected. Like obviously for trend following to work, we need a trend so we have a signal to tell us. But if the thing just falls out of bed the next day, uh, trend following is not going to save us from those sort of drawdowns. Right. Because So, so Wes, Wes broke the paper up into a few different sections. As he said, he, he started by looking at eight individual countries uh, and compared a buy and hold strategy in those countries. So you just buy it and own it, Every, you know, the stocks in those countries against if you did trend following in those countries. So the, the countries he looked at were the US, the UK, Japan, Germany, France, Canada, Brussels, and Australia. Wes, how far back did it go about? It, it would, on the, for this one, it is for, from 20, 1927 to 2019, just because that's the long tail typically on the US market. So I just wanted to start there where they all have data for the whole time period basically. Right. And then and so then and then you broke it up into a few different sections and, mm -hmm. and as as he said, uh kind of the first section was just simply looking at buy and hold versus trend following those countries. Yeah. Said it looked pretty good. Um but yeah, could could you could you just hit on that one more time, go back into sure. it, what what yeah. did it so, look like? So the first section was all about just confirming and doing, in some sense, an out-of-sample test of what we already knew. Does yeah. trend following work? And long story short is yes. It, it gets you most of the return, rips out a lot of the left tail problems. But then the next question was, well, that's interesting. 
but what are the dynamics of trend following and, and how often do you get whipsawed? What, what can we expect as far as the pain uh, component of trend falling? What does that dynamic look like over time? Yeah. And, and hence the, the name of the title there, uh, trend falling is the, the epitome of no pain, no gain. What you notice is that there is a lot of behavioral challenges associated with trend falling. Yeah, and so before we get into that pain, mm-hmm. uh, the, the summary on that, that country level was seem like you get equity-like returns, but yeah, you're removing these major drawdowns, as was said, but if you owned Germany or you owned uh, Japan, yeah. it didn't save you. Those markets went down basically 100%, and you went down almost 100% with them, whether you did buy and hold or trend following. Um, so I guess you would say diversification is important. Yeah, certainly. Yeah, on your tail risk management, you can't just do trend following expect to solve the whole problem you got to do other components as well yeah um so so applying trend following uh helped Mm -hmm. um you hit on that but then then the second part you went into so why is trend following challenging well it's it's challenging basically on two fronts the the first one is in a relative performance uh standpoint with the idea is even though we probably shouldn't compare a trend following system, which a lot of times in cash to buy and hold, that's just what the marketplace does. And Jack actually has a good post about this, and Corey does, a lot of people do. Uh, but regardless, who cares what's rational? People will compare trend following to buy and hold. And so one way you can assess pain is just look at five-year relative performance spreads between a trend followed equity series and a buy and hold equity series and just look for huge deviations and sure enough across all markets across all time if you're a trend follower you should expect to have a large distribution of outcomes around buy and hold benchmarks over five year time periods because relative is the pain right by relative we mean hey if you like by 10 percent over five years annualized that doesn't mean you were down 10 percent maybe the market was up 20 and you were only up 10 but but exactly but, yeah. but as you highlighted in this paper, that is what really, really hurts the relative difference, right? It's yes. Nobody likes 10% returns when the market's giving you 20%. Exactly. Right. Um, so, so that was aspect one uh, of where the pain was. And then, yeah. then the second aspect is whenever you are trend falling, you're, you're basically, if something's in a trend, you own it. If it starts not trending, you sell it and you wait for it to be back in the trend before you buy it again. So, unfortunately, a whipsaw is this idea that you sell high, but end up having to buy even higher, right? So, so trend falling didn't work. And so, one question was, okay, we're going to do this system. It seems to be helpful from risk management, but what percentage of these trades are actually winners versus losers? And unfortunately, you're looking around across the board. It's pretty consistent. About 80% of the time that you're in a trend or risk managed status, it's going to be a losing trade. So you're not going to be happy with it. And obviously the why it's nice is because that one time when it actually works, you know, it saves your bacon. Right. But the problem is you got to live through, you know, eight, nine times out of ten just feeling like, geez, why did I just buy and hold the market? And people don't really enjoy that. So a lot of pain. Right. And and the the best thing I've heard it compared to is it's it's insurance, right? It's yeah. when you pay when you have a health insurance and you pay it every month and you're not sick or you're not hurt, well, you've lost 
that money, right, on that one-time payment, and you're like, man, I didn't need health insurance last month. But that one time you do need health insurance, right, maybe it saves you $300,000 in hospital bills and, um, you know, would have totally destroyed you. Um, you're happy you have health insurance. So trend following, you lose on average about eight out of ten times you end up getting whipsawed, as West showed in this paper. Uh, but that one time it saves you, it feels really good. Um, and, and that's what it what it all works out to. And any other takeaways on this paper, Wes? No, I think I think you summarized it nicely. Like trend falling works, but it's you know, it's not a panacea and it's basically buying a form of insurance. Yeah. And it makes sense that investors should have at least as one component of their portfolios some element of trend falling because it is a unique differentiated return series that can probably help your overall uh, portfolio profile. Jack, you got anything to add on Wes's research here? No, I mean, that's just a, a well-known fact, right? So trend following is an attempt to minimize your left tail events while not paying like a constant premium, such as like rolling puts, mm. right? So, you know, with rolling puts, you kind of know where your cost is, like on a yearly basis, but trend, it can vary from year to year, right? 2017, you're all in, great. Like trend following looks awesome, you caught all the upside, you know, 2018, 2019, you get whipsawed. So, and that, that premium that you pay is gonna vary from period to period, and that's what Wes mentioned, you know, 80 to 90% of the time you're gonna lose. And unfortunately, you don't know what that premium is gonna be. It can vary. Right, right. and there, there was another paper on our site from this year that looked into what your options were for protecting your downside, right? Buying puts, uh, doing trend following, on and on. Um, and yeah, so, so that's something else you could check out if, if you were interested. Um, so we're just going to then switch to Jack's favorite research paper from this year titled Value Investing and Concentration. Uh, Jack, you open this up talking about the struggle of value investing over the last decade relative to the market. What was your goal with this paper? Yeah, so the goal was just to simply kind of examine it. Right now we're even closer to the end of the, end of the decade. Uh, when I wrote it, it went through uh, June of 2019. So... Uh, value had a small rebound here, but the idea was to kind of examine like what is value investing, what happened historically, and then really what happened the last 10 and 5 years because you know, a lot of times people look at the short time period, shorter time periods, right? Five years is still a long time. Um, and I wanted to examine, you know, if, if you build a value portfolio, does it matter how you build it? Mm. Yeah, and you, you've focused on two main questions. How many value stocks should I hold? In other words, does more concentration to the value factor make sense? And then how much variation is there amongst the different value metrics? Walk us through how you set up uh, the study to look at answering those questions. Yeah, so what I did was, um, and again, I had posts on this before. There's other uh, authors um, in, in the industry. O'Shaughnessy has a really good paper on this. but. Uh, what I did was I looked at U.S. and international developed stocks um, from around 1990 to 2019, and I looked at the top thousand stocks that had the four value metrics, um, enterprise multiple being one, um, which does by default kind of eliminate some of the financial firms, or it eliminates financial firms from the universe. Mm -hmm. But so that was a setup, top thousand U.S. or international that have the four value metrics, um, which I wanted to examine in the paper. Yep. 
and then so then what happened when you split the various value screens up between the cheapest and most expensive quintile yeah so quintiles you know the long-term premium there's a reason value is a factor in academics and practitioners use so if you go over the full sample from you know 90 to today you see that as you go from quintile one being cheap to quintile five being expensive both in the u.s and international side we see that value did better than growth right not not surprisingly you know basically just replicated academic findings right there right and then and so what what were the effects of concentration yeah so concentration and how i tested that specifically was i said okay i have a thousand stocks that have information i'm either going to pick you know the top 50 250 500 stocks on one of these value metrics or the average of the value metrics right and so by doing that uh, it's kind of like going from quintile to quintile but just on the number of stocks right so 50 250 500 what you see is over the full time period right this makes sense if you believe a factor works the more you allocate somewhat towards that factor the higher the return was right but it wasn't you know a free lunch you you ha would have earned that return but you would have also had higher tracking error so as you went from 50 or 500 to 250 to 50 in the past there were higher kagers or compound annual growth rates but it also came with higher tracking error relative to the universe right yeah and, and i like that you laid that out so that to to reiterate that is what we're talking about when we're talking concentration we're going from a thousand stocks to 500 stocks to 250 to 50 stocks right so you're just owning less stocks or more concentrated um so then then what about when you looked at concentration effects over the last five years how did concentrating in value stocks help or hurt the returns yeah so you know there's a lot of a lot of written is value dead etc etc um and so first I just looked at the quintiles and what you saw is over the past 10 years value didn't do that well. Yep. Past five years value did horrible. Yep. Like that's true no matter how you do it, right? Past five years value did bad. And so not surprisingly, right, as you went into more concentrated value portfolios, especially in the U.S. over that time period, you would have done worse than a more, I would say, diluted value portfolio, right? So you're... 50 stock value portfolio did worse than the 500 stock value portfolio, yeah. which kind of makes sense because you have more of a weight or tilt towards the value portfolio itself or the value factor. Right. At the end of the paper, you went through the three beliefs you have as an investor. I thought that was great. Um, the, the three beliefs you had were value investing, characteristics drive returns, and then factor investing is simple but not easy. So we kind of went through... A little bit value investing here, right? But if you just want to expand on that. Yeah, just essentially buying cheap stocks historically where there was a premium for it, right? So that's kind of belief one. Belief two, right, is kind of characteristics drive return. So, uh, you know, uh, when one examines portfolios, you can look at like, hey, what's the average enterprise multiple of this ratio or the EP, earnings yield of this ratio? And then the third, which is highlighted in there, is that value investing or factor investing is kind of simple. I, you know, it's really not that hard to sort stocks like this. But as mentioned, like the past five years, it's not necessarily easy. Right. So it kind of just tied together. The, so yeah, what you should. Value lagged. Your paper talked about. Your paper talked about all these rolling return periods where five-year rolling return periods where trend following lags. 
right? And Wes, I think actually you had the stat in yours uh, over most five-year rolling periods for trend following, one can expect to underperform the buy and hold counterpart right? to drive that home. So uh, anything you would add on these three beliefs, value investing, characteristics, drive returns, and factor investing is simple but not easy? No, I mean, I think that summarizes it. And then and one thing to add about relative performance is it's all about relative performance. So if your benchmark was trend falling and you compared the, the buy and hold to that, you know, you, your perspective would be very different. You'd be like, why would anyone ever be a buy and hold investor? Similarly, if your benchmark was concentrated value and you compare that over the time period to SP 500, you'd be the opposite. You'd be like, God, it's painful to own SP 500. So it's just our world is set up on that frame and that's created this relative performance pain, which is in some sense pain, but it's in the eyes of the beholder. Yeah. So to the extent we can get around that and find ways to, you know, have better behavior, I, I think you can exploit some of this. Sure. Um, so transitioning then, we'll just get to your favorite research paper from this year that you summarized. Uh, you uh, titled it, when equity factors drop their shorts. Um, that was the name of the research paper. You titled the blog, Forbidden Knowledge, Long Only Academic Factors Are Also Cool. Explain to us why it's interesting that someone decided to research long only factors. It's interesting because in, in general, in academic research, the way you identify a factor is you go you know, long top 10% on PE ratio and you go short the bottom 10% on PE ratio and you look at the performance of that long short portfolio. And then you come to some conclusion that value works, momentum works, what have you. Um, and yet in practice, it, except in rare cases, most of the time the way people invest in factors is via long only portfolios. Mm. Or maybe they go long only and then they'll, they'll hedge the beta risk by shorting a future or something like that, right? Um, the problem is no one's really ever formally done a lot of public research on this until this paper here, which is why it was pretty compelling. And, and what do you think should be the high-level takeaway from that paper? Well, the high-level takeaway, and I think what's kind of surprising, is that it, long only factors actually do add value. Because mm -hmm. a lot of times the argument in academic geek literature is like, well, you know, you got the long and the short leg, but the short leg is the thing that's hard to short, it's very costly, so that's where all the alpha is, mm. and the long leg doesn't really do anything for you. Mm. And what, what these gentlemen did in this paper is actually highlight, well, actually, not only does the long leg actually add value, it's arguable that, that it adds almost all the value. Yeah. And actually, the short leg component of the portfolio is maybe not as valuable, uh, at least to a portfolio, as once thought, So, which is actually counterintuitive and not in line with a lot of what's been published out there. Right. And, and they, they went into, in the paper then, kind of off of what Wes is saying, being long the factor and short the market as opposed to being long the factor and short the factor. Um, so, so you guys can all dig in and check that out. But Wes or Jack, anything else to add on that? It's just, if you invest in factors and you're not doing a market neutral, like, which very people, few people do, this would obviously be a good paper to read as opposed to a lot of the academic long short based papers because they're somewhat irrelevant. Right. Yeah. The one thing just to add that I thought was neat was, as you mentioned, they do test this by going long the factor short the market or short the factor long the market. But what they, the, one of the neat, neater things that I thought from that paper was the correlations. 
So on the long side, you actually get like benefits of like using a couple of different factors, and they don't find that to be as strong on the short side, which is interesting. Yeah, 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 yeah. Maybe uh, all all correlations go go to uh, one when when markets are going down or something. I don't know what what's driving that, but um, so the last po post from our site we'll cover is Jack's favorite research summary from this year. He titled the blog, Do Most Individual Stocks Outperform Cash? No. Jack, right to the point, I like it. Uh, explain to us the setup here. It's kind of uh, already said in the title, but explain to us the setup here and what led you to like this uh, research so much. Yeah, so it's kind of a follow-up to the original Best and Binder paper, whereby he looked at U.S. stocks, how do they do relative to cash, right? This includes other international stocks. And the main finding of this paper is that, you know, there's like 40-plus trillion of wealth created from equities, mm -hmm. right, Real on a relative to cash basis. And the crazy part is less than 1.5% of the observations drove that $40 trillion in wealth, right? So yeah. essentially the other 98.5 plus percent, you know, accounted for almost no value creation, right? And then if we look specifically at like, hey, if you just invested in a stock, what percentage of the time in any given stock do you outperform cash? It's only 40% of the time, mm -hmm. right? So those are the kind of crazy stats. And you know why I like this paper or like the idea in the paper is because sometimes when, when I think it's good to uh, emphasize this point to individual investors because a lot of times it's like, hey, I learned how to value the company. And then I also learned that markets are efficient and that there's this crazy, there's this premium called the equity risk premium. And then investors or individuals piece these three together and say, oh, I'm just gonna buy a couple like random stocks, right? And this paper kind of highlights, well, yeah, there's an equity risk premium if you buy the market over the long term. Right. But this paper says it's not if you buy individual stocks over the long term. Right. And it highlights your odds of picking a winning stock is pretty low, or lower than I think most people would have perceived given the other pieces of information I just mentioned. Right. And so I guess we could kind of tie this back into characteristics right then, where it's you're saying uh, in the aggregate, stocks do well right and that sounds good but that doesn't mean you can pick any one stock and expect to outperform cash actually if you pick any one stock you're extremely likely to underperform cash right yeah well if the historical uh probabilities or, or historical outcomes stay the same yeah you would only had a 40 percent chance of beating cash right and 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 can we say it's the same thing with value investing right where the characteristics are okay in the past if you own a basket of value stocks they outperform but if you select any one stock off of that uh, characteristic that doesn't necessarily mean you're going to do well we're talking more in the aggregate is that correct uh yeah well again if you just pick one random stock we kind of know what those odds are yeah Right, and again, the difference, there, there is a de very big difference between this paper and value investing. Yep. So value investing or any of these factors have an embedded rebalance schedule. This paper specifically looks at like buy and hold of one stock where you never rebalance. So I just think it's it probably is a little hard to perfectly make a, tie, a tie those two together. Okay, all right, Wes, what, what do you got? Anything else for us? No, I mean, well, Jack has an actual follow-on post to that because people always ask, like, well, 
you know, if it's so hard to find a, a stock that beats the market, that just implies logically that we should just buy them all yeah. and, and buy and hold forever. And then so Jack has a good post that says, well, this study is about buy and hold forever on any individual security. But in factor portfolios, we're actually going to create portfolios that can change over time. And, and you can no longer apply the same logic because portfolios of cheap stocks with the cheap stock characteristic can actually add value as we already know over time and it's fine that you're owning like you know 50 50 of them as long as you're trading them in and out and making sure you're always getting the cheap ones yeah. uh, you can't buy and hold the 50 and hold them for 100 years because that would be a bad idea yeah and would fall in line with the this paper's evidence unfortunately got it lots lots of nuance in investing anything else to add jack no all right all right so that wraps up our Christmas uh, Christmas spectacular. Merry Christmas, Happy Holidays, Happy Hanukkah, Happy Kwanzaa, anything else I missed, and to all, good night. The views expressed in this recording are the personal views of the participants as of the date indicated and do not necessarily reflect the views of Alpha Architect itself. Nothing contained in this recording constitutes investment, legal, tax, or other advice and should not be viewed as a current or past recommendation or a solicitation of an offer to buy or sell any securities or to adopt any investment strategy. The information in this recording is based on current market conditions which will fluctuate may be superseded by subsequent market events or for other reasons. Alpha Architect does not resume any duty to update forward-looking statements. The information in this recording has been developed internally and or obtained from sources believed to be reliable. However, no representation or warranty, expressed or implied, is made or given by or on behalf of Alpha Architect as to the accuracy and completeness or fairness of the information contained in this recording. Any liability as a result of this recording, including direct, indirect, special, or consequential loss or damage is expressly disclaimed. Copyright 2018, Alpha Architect LLC. All rights reserved.